0: Welcome to the Matthew Moran podcast. Here you will find a series of in-depth conversations with the world's best nature photographers, filmmakers, conservationists, editors, writers, and publishers. You will get an insight into the lives of creative professionals and industry experts, what goes on in their minds, how they approach their work and how they make it pay. The podcast also looks at the role that photography and filmmaking plays in helping to raise awareness about the global plight of species. And despite the depressing statistics, we look for solutions at what we can all do to contribute to conservation. All my guests give up their precious time and are incredibly generous of spirit. So this is my chance to share these conversations with you. So sit back, relax and enjoy. This week, my guest is Clay Bolt. Clay is a natural history and conservation photographer who specializes in photographing invertebrates. This specialism is actually really an obsession, and in his own words, Clay says, that his favorite subjects in the world are the little animals which most people ignore. Widely regarded for being a bee specialist, Clay not only makes beautiful and engaging pictures of these animals, he's also played a big role in helping to protect them, including the rare rusty patch bumblebee, a species that became the first North American bee to be protected under the US Endangered Species Act in 2017. We met up at my home in North London, fresh off Clay's recent success in the Wildlife Photography of the Year competition, to talk about all of this, bees, competition successes, and why conserving species starts in your own backyard. Clay, welcome to, well, welcome to Tottenham. North London, all the way from Montana, but you've come here at a great time. We're just talking about the beautiful, crisp weather, and um, well, you're here for an exciting reason. You're another photographer I've interviewed recently who has been successful in Wildlife Photographer of the Year, which doesn't happen to many photographers. So, uh, how are you feeling about that?
1: I have to say, first of all, thanks for having me, and um, I have to say, it's 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 a bit bizarre. I've been Entering and 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 participating with the competition for many years now, and uh, I think it means a lot more to me now at this point in my career than it would have even you know ten years ago. So I'm um, so happy to be here. And, and anytime something like this happens, I'm always sort of surprised that that photography has taken my life in so many exciting directions. I I just feel incredibly privileged.
0: That's great. And actually you were telling me earlier that you kind of had a bit of imposter syndrome because you've judged the competition before you've been a winning photographer, but that's great. You know, I was talking about your, your speciality, you know, particularly with invertebrates, particularly with bees, which we'll, we'll certainly talk about, um, but yeah, being involved as I have done similar to you, it took me 18 years of entries before I got in and you can see why it's such a a prestigious event and, you know, it's one of the oldest and certainly the biggest, in terms of it of its reach, um, but actually, as well as the feeling that you get of being a successful photographer, which is great, you're you in our limited time talking together, you're much more interested in actually giving a platform to the species that you're photographing. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I th- I think for me, a competition
1: like this has a uh, has a couple of really good purposes. One for myself, in terms of selfishly. Um, I, I like having something that strives to make me a better photographer because ultimately that means that I can be more successful as a conservation photographer. Um, so, so I have enjoyed that uh, looking at images from previous years and thinking, like how can I do something better than that? How can I make an image that will get people excited about um, the subject matter? But most importantly, and I, and I do mean this genuinely, I, I am very careful about the kinds of images that I enter. Maybe too careful because I haven't won anything prior to this year, but um, I I really want the photos to get out into the world so that people learn more about the subject, and I think that that is the thing that well, it's just it's such an incredible opportunity. I mean, the photos from Wildlife Photographer of the Year go out to so many thousands of people, and so with the right messaging and the opportunity to speak to people such as yourself. You know, a lot of people are going to learn more about the species in my photograph. Um, And that's incredibly exciting to me because especially as a photographer who works on insects, I feel like there's so much that needs to be done to spread awareness about the value of insects and the importance of insects to the ecosystem, but also just how amazing they are. So super excited about um, what will come after this image has reached more people.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's great. And um, I mean, also, we should allow ourselves, as you know, as conservation photographers or whatever you want to call yourself, just to enjoy it, enjoy the moment. Because let's face it, we work really hard. You put a lot of hours in the field, a lot of time spent on our own, and this is a great opportunity to actually, you know, take your hat off, put the camera down, and spend also meet people like you coming here. It's great meeting you, meeting like-minded photographers. And so, yeah, I mean, I encourage you to like fully embrace that and enjoy it and like, yeah, turn off your, I've got to do good for the world for the minute and, and experience that because it's really, it's a, it's a great event and really, really good fun.
1: I appreciate you saying that because I do find that because I work in conservation, that I'm always so mission driven and that I feel a bit guilty for, for feeling that pleasure at times. and yeah, I think I think the older I get, the more I realize I need to do some stories now and then that just bring me joy, that reconnect me back to the reason that I got into this to begin with. Because I, I think maybe this is a too broad of a statement, but I feel like there are not a lot of us working in conservation that got into it because we're sort of um, driven by the thrill that comes from trying to protect species. It's because we had a love that be- you know, began this work. We were in love with nature and we still are. But we we started because of that passion and I think if you don't give yourself the opportunity to to be reminded of that then it's easy to burn out or feel despair and so yeah thanks for saying that I think that
0: <laughs> I'm gonna have a good time yeah I'm gonna do my best yeah that's right and I hope as well I mean I'm sure of course I'm sure you do and 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 all, all photographers do you know I do sometimes wonder about you know people like Joanne MacArthur, you know who I've had on this podcast before you know going into slaughterhouses and doing like really really grim stuff you know this there's that I don't know whether there can really be an an enjoyment in that, you know, you talk about being mission driven, but when you're out in a beautiful wildflower field, like photographing bees, you talked earlier about it being quite Zen and, you know, I've seen you, I know you're not like a, a full, full hippie, but I often say that as well. Like when I'm taking people out to Hampstead Heath or, or wherever that it's a really, it's a really meditative process and just such a, Wonderful and passive way of engaging with nature. So, do you have that like when you're out there? Do you, when you're photographing, do you like in, enjoy that experience? Or are you like permanently frustrated that the bee's not in the right place or your flash didn't fire and all the things that can go wrong for us in the field? <laughs> At
1: this advanced stage, being 46, I've been doing this for <laughs> 20 years. I've learned that bees are going to get away now and then and it doesn't, it doesn't typically frustrate me as much as it you know 20 years ago i was in this sort of mindset that like every image was going to be like amazing and like this was <laughs> the only chance that i'm going to get and now i realize that like i've mostly been shooting crap for the last 20 years so <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's better in my mind than it would have been otherwise um so i i do you know i i enjoy the challenge of chasing insects around and getting excited about what they're doing and the thing i Absolutely love about insects is that you can go out, you know, we could go into your back garden, and I guarantee you that we probably could see something that no one has ever seen before and photograph something that maybe someone's never seen before. There could even be new species in your backyard. There are so many amazing things that it's every time I go out, honestly, I if I spend enough time looking, I see something that just blows my mind.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah it goes way back further than 20 years ago of you being a photographer um been reading it as as a 10 year old kid you became fascinated with it you don't know why you're currently exploring that which is really interesting but you also mentioned that you know you weren't into sports you were one of these geeky kids like rummaging around in the earth looking for stuff to find yeah um and but that's obviously stuck with you for whatever reason and can you talk a bit about that? You know, were the kids at school into lions and tigers and elephants? And you did you did were you aware that you were a slightly different kid, or you know, was, was that going on for you at the time?
1: It's funny because you know, it's even it's even it's honestly like I can't ima- remember a time in my life when I wasn't obsessed with them. Um, Like I remember being in first grade, and and the teacher was like, "What do you what do you want to do when you grow up?" And I was like, "I want to be an entomologist," because I had read that word, and you know, I was going to the adult section of the library and picking (laughs) out these big books. And I think at the time, I was actually really, really proud of that. Like I thought that I had found something, and I had found something special. But of course, the older you get, you go through this process of people going, you know, "Oh, this kid is what a dork," you know, he likes bugs and stuff like that. Like I remember. In the second grade, I created a living diorama with. Um, I called them stag beetles at the time, but they were these beetles called peg beetles that are a little bit like a stag beetle. And so I had this poster board, and I had taken one of the plastic sort of um, containers that I had an action figure in it. I think it was like a He-Man action figure to date myself. And I put the <laughs> beetles in there with like a little habitat, but I didn't think about that they eat wood, so they could clearly eat through cardboard. So like. I, I did really well in the science fair but then they ended up escaping into the school you know <laughs> it's just like i was yeah from the beginning i was doomed to just be picked on but i loved it so much and i think that there was a time in my life where i allowed um peer pressure might not be the right word but a or, or right term but i allowed these sort of external pressures to rob me of some of my joy sure and i think as in a you know a, a large child now um i'm starting to to remember what that feels like and incorporate that more into my life and it's about the photography and the the photography is important but the photography is really a tool for me to sort of spread this awareness and this love and that that's what keeps me going i think yeah
0: yeah and that's it's interesting as well because you you know you don't come from a scientist's background either and that could have been really the route that you took with the enthusiasm and Knowledge that you wanted to garner from your obsession with insects, but you went into graphic design. That's right?
1: that's right. Yeah, my other love um, was was art. I loved to draw, and so I, you know, that was the thing that I could do that impressed people. You know, you want me to draw a Batmobile? Sure, yeah. I can do that. Um, I also would try to impress. The young ladies with that. And that wasn't as cool. <laughs> it didn't work out. It, it worked about as well as the insect part. But God, um,
0: sorry to interrupt. I'm just thinking how, like, school is so brutal, isn't it? Like, when you're a kid and you di- it's about finding your safety mechanism. Like, I was little at school, but I was good at football. So that meant I didn't get bullied mm-hmm. because people, oh, Matt, can you do, you know, show me how you do these kickups or, you know, that helped. But if you don't have that, if you don't have those cool drawing skills, like, you know you're really increasing your chances of like being beaten up or teased or whatever.
1: it's yeah. so tough isn't it? it it really is and I was definitely and I I think to some degree I still am but I was definitely eccentric like you know like I would uh, like I remember when like stonewashed jeans came out and like we were <laughs> we were very wealthy and so like I was like I'm just gonna make my own. So I like got some bleach and like, but I, instead of just trying to make it look like the other ones, I was like, I'm going to write things on it. And, you know, I went to school with them the next day, smelling of bleach. I didn't <laughs> even wash them. And, you know, of course I got picked on more for that. You know, it's like, oh, uh, but I, what's interesting to me, you know, saying I, I, it's true. I don't have a degree in in entomology or, or, or biology and I was in. Especially when I started working in conservation, I was a little bit embarrassed. I was I was intimidated to be around scientists because they knew all the Latin names. Sure. And, but what I have found is that I mean I've certainly become, I think, an expert um, because I'm just obsessed with with the material and, and the subjects. but I can say things that I think scientists sometimes wish that they could say, but because of peer pressure of their own, <clears throat> they can't speculate about things in the way that I can.
0: You know, I can always go, but I'm not a scientist. That's a really good way of flipping it, isn't it? So instead of having this imposter syndrome around scientists, and I was also wondering whether there have, if you've felt pressure from the science community at all, whether they've been, oh, you know, he's not a real scientist. So, you know, well, you know, why why should we care what he thinks? But yeah, that's a really nice way of flipping it because it's almost like, well, the the chains are off. Yeah, you can say what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, to a certain degree. Yeah. I yeah. try to
1: make sure everything is fact-based as yeah. much as much as possible. Um, but you know, I've had mixed reactions in general. People have been very kind, and I think I have gotten better at being accurate, you know, and I've really read the literature and I've really read every book I can on like like bees, for example, and bumblebees, especially. And so I think that I have gained some trust and respect. I think it's sometimes when people are oftentimes the older guard. You know that that are like, who is this guy? You know, he's just a what citizen science, but they say it like in sort of a snide kind of way. <laughs> um, that I get comments, but I, I think that that younger people, um, and so especially people that I've met are like, you are a scientist, you just don't have a degree in it. That makes me feel really good. Yeah. I, you know, it's it's like being an honorary fire firefighter or something like that. You yeah. know, I get the big hat and I get to, to participate. But, um, yeah, I I. I really pride myself in trying to have all the latest knowledge and information. and I honestly, I just find it exhilarating to like learn new things. yeah,
0: and that's brilliant, isn't it? Like you need to you really need to be in in an environment because you would encourage anyone else, like just because you don't have a degree in this. like that means the door's completely closed. It's ridiculous. And you know, I myself, you know when you look at our community of photographers and if you look at competitions like Wildlife Photographer of the Year, who's being published in all the magazines. A lot of the time these photographers are zoologists they are biologists and so you know that has without a doubt crept into my thinking like oh maybe that's what i should go back and like do that degree and but that doesn't necessarily make you a better photographer i totally get why it could but um yeah that i am i'm with you because i'm also i also don't have a science degree i don't have a degree um but it, it shouldn't stop you and um you know i hope Anyone's listening to this, um, who does you know, feel like they should, then you know, well, look at us—we're both award-winning photographers, Clay, <laughs> <laughs> and
1: good-looking. Yeah, exactly. We've got it all, really. <laughs> um, you know, it's—I it, think that's absolutely right. And and again, getting back to this idea of insects and small things, like there are not enough paid scientists to do the work. Like I, I'm going to probably mess this story up, but there is there the person who, one of the people. That I have thought about a lot, and I don't even remember his name, so <laughs> I haven't thought about him that much. But there, there's this story that I heard about this person from Montana who grew up. Um, I think he was in a trailer park, and he just became obsessed with lichens as a young person because they were growing on like the the concrete wall outside of his um, home, and he became a renowned expert on lichens. But he, that's not his career; like he does something else. And it was just because he had that interest that he and nobody else was doing the work that he became this expert. And there, there, there are so many organisms in the world, I mean, that have not been discovered or not studied. Um, you just, you know, some of it requires specialized tools. Like there's a lot of interest, I think, these days in tardigrades or water bears because they're these amazing little microscopic creatures. But like new species are being discovered in in parking lots, and you know, there all all of these things are out there just waiting to be studied. And so you can become the expert in something. There's not anyone to really argue with you if you if you put the time and effort into yeah, it. Yeah,
0: exactly. And then the experts themselves, you know, don't know everything. I spoke to a number of fox experts, and of course their knowledge is incredible. But when you're talking about any species, you can't. Say that you're the complete and utter authority because nature is surprising and nature is evolving and changing. So so does our knowledge have to as well. Yeah, I would imagine with foxes, for example, I'm sure you've
1: seen behavior that is puzzling to another expert because you're out there in a different area than they are. Animals adapt and they and they make the best of the situation. So, um, I I certainly um, I was working on a, a project a few years ago. With a good friend of mine, Krista Slyer, and we were doing a story on commensalism or species that live in pitcher plants in the southeastern United States. So, you know, pitcher plants are these um, passive traps for insects. They have a, a weak digestive fluid in them, and the insect falls in. But there is some, and and is consumed ultimately by the plant. But there are some insects who have used learned how to use those um, traps as as shelter or to catch their own prey. All of these cool things. So, like. I found this species of wasp that was nesting in a in a pitcher plant that had never been photographed um, or documented in that particular species, and I saw it a bunch of times. And I was asking people like, "What is this?" and and, and people didn't know. And so I like started looking through the literature and figured out that it was a species of wasp called a grass-carrying wasp that builds these grass nests, oftentimes in other kinds of cavities. And so, like, to be able to like find that and photograph that, and then while in the process of that, like. Kristen and I saw this um, species of, of sphinx moth that was nectaring in the pictures. That also had never, it's like one thing after another, the more you start looking, you know, and that's, that's like so exhilarating to me. That is more exciting than, I mean, I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but it's more <laughs> exciting than winning a competition because I feel so lucky to have seen these things, you know, but it's the time you put in that gives you those rewards. Yeah,
0: of course it is. That's so, yeah. it's uh, so cool to hear. So like we mentioned like bees enough now to like, Let's go into them in a little bit more depth because this has really been your passion for a long time and continues continues to be. Um, I actually I made a few notes and could not believe there are four thousand species of bee in the United States. I mean, how many of those are bumblebees, for example?
1: So bumblebees are really interesting in that they are not the most diverse group of bees. They're they're around two hundred fifty species in the world, right? And around, um, you know. Probably in the US, around 40 ish species. I say 40 ish because it's similar to birds. There's a lot of evidence or a lot of um, analysis being done through DNA. And so many of the species look very similar to each other. Like maybe two years ago, a species that's really common in Montana, where I live, um, was split into three separate species. Wow. You know, there's like, there are color variations within bees. So, for example, like um, the Bombus rufusinctus, the red belted bumblebee, has um, more than a dozen color forms all of them can ranging from like dark to very yellow to yellow and red and then very red. So they you know there are examples of species that have this sort of like polymorphism in terms of colors. But then there are others. There was one that was discovered in the Beartooth Mountain Range, which is is also very close to where I live in Livingston, Montana, that looks exactly like another species. It was only through DNA analysis that it was um Able to be determined that it was a new species, and so the scientists called it Bombus incognitus. And there are a lot of examples: there's Bombus perplexus and Bombus confusus, because they all look very similar yeah. to one another.
0: That's a great. That's awesome. Yeah. But do you remember? Was there was there a, was there a moment, or did it kind of evolve organically? You getting into and becoming this this specialist around bees? You know, why not? You know, wasps or like other other insects? Is it because like? You know, bees are the cutest because they've got fur on them. Everybody loves mammals with fur. Like, what was it that really got you hooked on them, and can and and you know continue to be? I don't know. I keep saying obsessed, but you. you got I, this, I think you I got am this, obsessed. Yeah, yeah. This
1: vibe. Um, so around 2012, um, I remember seeing this this um, Time magazine cover that um, basically was about colony collapse disorder with honeybees. And at the time, I didn't realize that honeybees were not native to North America. They were introduced in the 1600s, and that honeybees are like cows and chickens. They are domesticated species that we, you know, humans have had a very long and storied relationship with. Um, There are even some some suggestions that one of the that that we relied on um, bees because they provided enough nutrients that allowed our brains to grow large. You know, like we have these sort of Long relationships with them, but in the U.S. even now, I, I think it is changing. But I think there is still this idea that if you want to help the bees, um, you know, you put a, a beehive in your backyard, and that's going to help the bees. But it's like basically putting some chickens in your backyard. It's nice, but it's not going to save like songbirds, for example. Sure. So anyway, I was just like everyone else, really. I mean, even though I had always been interested in insects, I didn't know very much at all about about bees. And in fact, I went back recently, looked at my childhood field guide, and there's only one species of bumblebee in there, and it just says bumblebee, and it's the western bumblebee, which I grew up in the east, southeast. You know, it wasn't even an insect that I would have encountered, but it was just so general that it's no wonder that I didn't know anything about bees. So I went out and I started photographing um, bees in my in my backyard, just on a whim, thinking I was going to be photographing honeybees. And the first day, I photographed these two. Separate species of sweat bee, which at the time I didn't even know. I'd heard of sweat bees, obviously, and I'd been stung by them maybe once when I was a kid, but um, I I didn't really know anything about them.
0: Why are they called sweat bees, by the way?
1: Well, some species are attracted to the minerals that you release as you sweat. Okay, but most are not. Like most of them will never. In fact, of the twenty thousand or so known species of bee in the world, most species are too small
0: to sting. Um, and no male bees can actually sting, and this is great information, and this is the point of like trying to get this out because you know I don't know any of this stuff, and I watched your film and yeah, most people don't know that male bees sting. and so you know you live your whole life thinking anything that's yellow and black and buzzing around is going to sting you. Exactly, but only half of those can anyway.
1: yeah, and and not only that, you know there's this sort of idea that oh, I'm gonna be attacked and swarmed by bees and that they'll sting and then the bee will die. like all of that is about honeybees. Sure. Whereas like most species, I think over 90% of those 20,000 bees are solitary, which means that you could basically say it's like a hardworking single mother trying to take care of her young. (laughs) (laughs) If she gets injured trying to sting you, then it means that there's no one to provide for her brood. There's not another worker or sister to do that. So bees do not want to sting you. And again, most of them are so tiny that they're so small that they can't even break the skin. Um, so that's one of the things that I always get asked is how many times have you been stung in the last, you know, X amount of years working on bees. And I would say that the answer is three times. And every time it was because I was a big idiot and I was, and one flew into my shirt because I was like in the middle of a shrub or something like that. It was never because I was attacked. Yeah, of course. The bee was like, (laughs) by killer bees. (laughs) Why am I? Yeah. Why am I in this sweatshirt or whatever? Um, and so (laughs) So I you know even the world's largest bee which we can talk about in more detail when I re- rediscovered it I mean that bee is as big as my thumb she was so docile like she didn't try to do anything to me she was just like I'm ready to ready just to leave right now you know um so anyway, to make a long story longer yeah. <laughs> um, when I photographed those first two bees in 2012, I started asking some of my entomologist friends, like, what have I photographed? Thinking that like a beetle or butterfly, people are just going to know right away what it is. And I, and actually, I won't name names, but a very well-known entomologist told me it was a different, totally different species. And it wasn't that person's expertise, but still, this person has a vast amount of knowledge. And that sort of led me down this rabbit hole of like, wait a minute, if this person doesn't know what this is, what's the story here?
0: And you're not even a scientist, Clay. I know. Just.
1: <laughs> A bizarre human who just <laughs> gets obsessed
0: with things. I think that's, that's right. amazing. That's so cool. And so then, yeah, yeah all of this stuff. I, this is what's so nice to hear your stories about when you, you keep you keep digging deeper and deeper, and you just, just going on this journey of discovery. And you know, if we fast forward a bit, it, I think like a lot of these projects when you when you start them, it's you're very green, which is great because you want to learn, and also you're taking photographs and you want to improve your photography and telling stories about these species. But you then really honed in on. One particular species, right? The, the rusty patch bumblebee.
1: I did. And it's funny because, again, I stumbled into bumblebees. Um, there's probably a rhyme in there that I could create, but I won't. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was actually, I realized that if I'm going to do this seriously and I'm going to become better at my work and not completely make a fool of myself, I needed to learn more about the species I was photographing. And, you know, one of the, I, I think one of the unfortunate sides of, of, insects is that because they are so small, because many of their distinguishing characteristics are, are hard to see, the specimens do need to be collected. And one of the best ways to learn about um, insects is to look at collections, like to really look at something under a microscope, hold it in your hand, to really you know examine it. And so I went to Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which is very close to where, where I was living at the time. And I knew that they had a really good insect collection. And so I was there to look at the sweat bees because that's where I had started. And um, the park entomologist Becky Nichols had a, um, well, at the end I asked her, I said, Becky, have any species gone extinct or are in trouble here or uh, in the national park? And she said, there is one. The rusty patch bumblebee hasn't been seen in a number of years and we don't know why. but." so she showed, showed me a specimen, and it was it was literally collected outside of the doors of the science center. And at that time, it was um, I think that was around 2013, maybe. So I had only been doing it for about a year, working with bees for about a year. She said, "We think that the cause is um, a disease, but we're not sure." And that led me down this journey of like trying to figure out what was happening with the species, and I. You know, I think the interesting thing about the rusty patch bumblebee is it—it's now I think a celebrity insect. But when I started working on it, I—I I don't think people were very aware of it. I mean, there, was there anyone else at this time, like, was trying to find out why? The Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation, which is one of the world's only um, uh, invertebrate-focused conservation organizations in the world, had petitioned the Fish and Wildlife Service to to list the species because. They knew that it, the numbers were in decline, but there were some ideas that it was a disease and there it was thought at the time that it had something to do with the commercial bumblebee industry, which had been developed in the early late 80s, early 1990s in the United States. It was already occurring here in Europe. Um, and so that coincided with the decline in these bumblebees, but they weren't exactly sure what it was for one thing, um, it was hard to know. Like if it is a disease, like what is the disease, and how do we find out if the disease wasn't here before this industry started? So that in itself took some some digging. Um, and um, a very amazing scientist named uh, Dr. Sidney Cameron began to explore how can we figure out. If there was like a, a KT boundary at the, the moment, you know, that's when the asteroid crashed into the earth, <laughs> if, if there was like that moment for bees. And so she and her team figured out a way to extract DNA from bumblebees from 1980. And then after um, this this commercial bumblebee industry arose, and they did in fact find a higher prevalence of this pathogen called Nosema bombi, which is a, a gut pathogen, a microsporidian gut, gut path, pathogen. Um, that impacts the fitness of bees because it fills them with spores where male bees can't mate. Um, the females become very lethargic. They can't forage. It decreases the, the fitness of a colony. And so they did They did say, okay, well, there is a prevalence here, but subsequent um, studies showed that it was the same species of Nosema that's found in Europe. Uh. And so th- that's one of the things in, in the film, uh, a ghost in the making that we produced about the rusty patch bumblebee that we didn't know at the time. So that left scientists scratching their heads: what what is causing this? Well, at the same time, another thing happened in the U.S. That around the early 90s, early to mid 90s, this is when neonicotinoid pesticides, which is a systemic pesticide that's found on 100% of non-organic corn in the U.S. anyway. Um, sixty to seventy percent of soy systemic means that every part of the plant is toxic. You cannot wash it off. It's 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 coated on the seeds of the corn. Only about five percent of that stays with the corn itself, which becomes part of the tissue. Or if it's on, um, say for example, you buy some lovely daisies at your garden center that have neonicotinoids on it. The pollen and the nectar itself is Toxic to the insects. Wow. Um, so there, there it's a multiple stressor syndrome, essentially. Um, and it's a very complicated story, which I'm happy to fold out. But just to say that, like, when I began working with the rusty patch, a lot of this wasn't quite known. And even though scientific organizations like Xerxes had been trying to push legislation to protect the insect, there was not enough public awareness, which is where I came in. There was this idea that i had to like make people fall in love with the bee so that then they can in turn support cersei's efforts yeah
0: and this is great just to interject you know i'm fascinated with this story but you know we can talk about you as the photographer as well afterwards but when you talk about this is where i come in this is what we often talk about or the conversations i have with colleagues and and friends and on this podcast is we have this Role. You know, I don't think I'm important and I'm going to save the world with my photographs, but with the really good photographs that can engage people and coupled with the really good text that's backed up by sound science that can possibly affect, you know, someone reading that that might want to get involved to help protect that species. And then, you know, at the very high level, policy change and, uh, you know, making a difference that way. So, you know, photography, we're not that important, but it does play a really, really big, big role. And so that's it, it, it's really great to hear.
1: Yeah, I think photography can really be a bridge to helping people connect with things that maybe they don't have a chance to see on their own or maybe they weren't aware of. I mean, I say bridge because you really want them to get to the place of having that direct connection. And I think what's been really interesting with the Rusty Patch is that, um, so to make a long story short, ultimately we were able to get the species protected under the Endangered Species Act.
0: Yeah, and that's amazing. I mean, I'm. I'm- we will definitely put the, the the film in the show notes because it's really beautiful I really enjoyed watching it and you know maybe we should just leave it to the audience to watch and find out for themselves because that was not an easy process by the way getting this be um listed like like any like any kind of like environmental legislation my god you have to really you know bang your head against you know a brick wall and i I remember this like maybe 20 years ago I read this article in National Geographic about um it was a three-part And like big feature um, on three big environmental collapses. And one was the cod fishery. And I think the thing that's really stood out from me for that was that the evidence was there, you know, that they were collapsing. And the scientists were saying so. And the fishermen were saying so. And they go to government policymakers, lawmakers with these documents, saying like this, you know, lobbying, this is what's going on. We have to just, you know, curb the fisheries. And then they say no. Like, what do you do then? You know, you just other than just give up, hang yourself, (laughs) throw yourself off a bridge. I don't know, but you've obviously got this uh, doggedness about you that yeah didn't give up, and that is yeah okay. It it, you, you still have to do the work, you still have to educate people, but actually getting some policy change as a photographer is really really good, and I think that's something that we often forget is as photographers, it's like you go into an area, you take your pictures, and. Yes, if you're trying to raise awareness, all that stuff's kind of good, but you, I don't know how many wildlife photographers have actually gone to the you know, Fish and Wildlife Service and said, hey, you need to actually protect this animal.
1: Do you know what's interesting is that after the species was listed, um, people at the Fish and Wildlife Service told me that the film and the photos made all the difference. Because I, I'm sure maybe it's the same here in the UK, but like, the the um, the Fish and Wildlife Service is so underfunded that that some species that are on the list only have a thousand dollars a year budget to help protect wow. them, you know. And 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 the smaller the organism, oftentimes the less funding or the less support they have. So they're in a they're in a tough position as well. So i i often i often get frustrated. That policy, because or the Fish and Wildlife Service, because of maybe some of the things that I see as failings, but it's not always the the people in the agency's fault. You know, it's it's the people that are playing the policy game that underfund or, and all these kinds of things. Um, but you're right in that that it was a well, I you know, I I, I do want to take some credit in that I I saw an opportunity and I I hate um well I support I love supporting the underdog yeah i can i can relate and i do think that you know you asked earlier what was it about bumblebees Um, and i really saw them as like these these teddy bears these sort of ambassador species for bumblebees and i think that that was perfect they were perfect because i think people automatically kind of love a a bumblebee, you know, they're fuzzy and they're yeah. you know, they make a cute, uh, at least to me, a cute sound, you know. Yeah, they're and also they're in like kids' books. Yeah, exactly. And so I realized that if 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 we had this flagship species that everywhere the Rusty Patch lived, everything else would be helped out. And so I like this idea of focusing on flagship species. Do I like the weird, wild, creepy types of things or whatever? Yeah, I love that stuff, but you're you're going to have a harder time um, convincing um, the average person who doesn't have a vested interest or who is not sort of is in tune with it as you are to save those things as you might a bumblebee.
0: Yeah, and that's the reality of it, isn't it? Is that you do? And as you were talking, I was thinking about, and we, we were talking earlier before we we started the podcast about you know the why or what's the point in the small stuff? You know, what are they giving us and it and, and something that always comes up is well, if you protect bigger species, mountain lions, bears, then by default, all those other species are going to come back because you're protecting their habitat and there are certain rules about what goes on there. But it sounds like this bee is also a keystone species. And if you can protect that habitat, then even the smaller, smaller stuff is, is working. And it doesn't mean that because you're going to protect a land mammal that roams a big area. That you shouldn't care about all the other stuff that's going on, because then you won't discover things like nosema and uh, and, and all the other th- issues that surround our insects, which are so important, which obviously support all of our life systems. Um, like, I mean, one of the questions was, you know, how how can we help? You know, I mean, I'm totally enthused by all this knowledge that's coming my way and your enthusiasm and and and, and passion. Like, how do you engage with? Every day, people you know that that, that might care about a specific species. Like, how do you get people engaged and uh, and doing stuff
1: to help? That's a really important, good question. And I I I will go back a little bit in terms of why I think this whole thing with with the rusty patch has been so successful, and that as opposed to um, I'll just use polar bear as an example. of Polar bear, you know, people understand that it's a, a, a majestic creature, um, it's a storied animal uh, that people want to help protect, but most people don't get an opportunity to live with this animal and, and see it and, and really have a real relationship with it. It's it's There's a symbolic polar bear and then there's the real animal. But with bees in particular, I think I would say with bumblebees and certainly honeybees, people can see them in their backyards and they can plant wildflowers and see the bees show up, and that creates this real relationship that I think transcends policy, which is what we so vitally need in our world. Because the truth of the matter is, is even though the species has been placed onto the endangered species list, there's still no designated critical habitat. The US still has no regulation on systemic neonicotinoid pesticides, which are harming the species. So, Policy has its limitations. In so many ways, the Endangered Species Act has been vital to, to helping protect so many of our species. And most species that get placed on the list survive. However, and maybe it's maybe just a sign of where we're at politically in the US, but most species that are on the list are so underfunded that it's only like the beginning of the process. What I have loved about the process with the Rusty Patch is that the things that have really helped it, I think, are the initiatives that people have taken. For example, um, the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota created a, um, I I forget what the amount was, but a granting program that homeowners could take out their front lawns, which are useless for wildlife, and put in prairie. So there's this, and it was for the rusty patched. Wow. And so there are things like that have been happening um, because people... Can see it, they can care, and people are excited when it shows up in their front yard, you know. And I, I think in some ways, you know, we were talking earlier about um, your work with foxes and how you you produce some videos, and and people became enthusiastic because they could see it. And I think that that is the other key component to conservation. It's like policy is great, but we have to remain engaged in in the process of protecting a species because. We can't leave it up. It, you wouldn't leave your most precious thing in the hands of somebody else. Like I, you know, I, I sort of think about like if you had a, I hate to use a, a capitalistic sort of um, uh, example, but if you had a, you know, a, a wheelbarrow full of gold bars, you wouldn't just like, can you just take care of these? You'd take it down and just drop it on the corner. And did you guys watch this for me? Eventually, somebody's going to take the bars, you know. <laughs> and uh, I think with with wildlife, it's like if we care about them, then we have to put in a little effort and it doesn't take much. I mean if you want to do something to help bumblebees or other native species, first of all, give yourself a break. don't mow your lawn. you know don't rake leaves as often as you may feel compelled to do. Leave it a little bit messy. they like that. Plant native wildflowers which are easier to grow than you know domesticated um, plants that you often find at garden garden centers. They require less water. They're incredibly beautiful, and you will get more and more species. You will feel it will be an embarrassment of riches. You know, um, animals respond if you give them half a chance, um, and that's what I think is so exciting about it is that that you can see the results of conservation in your backyard, in your own communities. And I think, to be honest, I think that 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 is one of the greatest opportunities we have for conservation are these. You know the idea of green spaces within communities, because if you think about like one of the most depressing things to me is to fly over. I was thinking as I flew into Madison, Wisconsin, where we work with the bumblebee. You know, houses, house after house. You know, center pivot agricultural fields. Um, very few wild spaces left. You know, they have nowhere to go. So how are they supposed to survive? But then you look at all of these these houses in these neighborhoods and the idea that you could build you could create green corridors just by everybody doing minimal effort in their yards could make a huge difference for wildlife yeah that's exciting to me
0: yeah no that's brilliant and again it's so good to hear your enthusiasm around that one of the well there were a few there's some brilliant quotes in in the film and one of the things that stuck with me and i wrote it down was this idea of valuing life you know outside of its economic value because you know we talk about bees or the collapse of bees because how that's going to affect us but you kind of want to reframe that conversation to say well actually there's a value to all of this and you've talked about that just now with the enjoyment that someone would get of you know leaving a front lawn to go wild and wildflowers growing and seeing all your all the species come through but that's a hard sell isn't it to this system that that we live in so what's your approach
1: well, I don't know if I figured it out yet, but I I do sort of think it's so important to to remind people that these species have been around much longer than our own and that they have every right to be here just as much as we do. And I think one of the things that there's a there's a brilliant um, scientist based out of the UK, Lars Chitka, who has just written a book called The Mind of the Bee or Mind of a Bee. And uh, it's about the the more we learn about intelligence in insects, um, their their ability to learn, solve problems, all of those kinds of things. I think those kinds of stories help people realize that they're not just little robots moving through the environment. And I do think that those kinds of studies are helping people have more understanding. Jumping spiders are a good example. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of people that have a um, An innate fear, an unnecessary innate fear of of spiders, but jumping spiders are cute enough that Mm. people—they're a
0: gateway uh, invertebrate. Yeah, I (laughs) love to use that phrase before the gateway bee. Yeah, you know that's that's so cool. And actually, already when you were talking about okay, so you know the hard sell—how you're going to get people into these animals? You know, bees are fluffy; they make this you know great noise. They're kind of cute, but I think now, after you telling me about the single mom, like trying to like look after her kids, that that anthrop- that level of anthropomorphizing is like, oh my god, <laughs> totally playing the victim card. That's you know, that's gotta that's gotta capture people. I hope so. I mean, why stop there? You know, like so, <laughs> I'll
1: tell you a story about the Arctic bumblebee. This is a a bumblebee that that I had the pleasure of photographing this past um this past summer in in Alaska, and it's it's quite cold obviously in Alaska and even springs are are very cold. So what the the mother does is she first of all creates a little wax cup for herself which she fills up with nectar and she sits on the eggs like a a mother bird to keep the eggs warm and she sips from this little cup so that she doesn't have to leave the eggs. (laughs) And bumblebees are really special in that they can unhinge their wings from their flight muscles and raise their body temperature so that they can fly in cold weather most insects can't do that wow so she sits and shivers on those eggs until they hatch her daughter's hatch and they can begin to take on some of the roles of the colony but just imagine you know like t- we have this idea that like there's this insect and it's just whatever and it doesn't even know what's happening to a mother bird you know or a, a mother bee sitting there shivering while it's cold outside keeping her eggs warm um to me those kinds of stories are you don't have to make it up. It's it's the real thing. Sure, I, I'll share one thing that so centipedes are are, are one of the invertebrates that really kind of give me the willies. They're very <laughs> unpredictable. <laughs> uh, they can bite, and they and they and they don't want to bite you. Nothing. I mean, that's the, the the cool thing is unless it's like a uh, like a horsefly or something or a mosquito, things don't really generally want to bite or sting you. Yeah, but centipedes have always been. They've always freaked me out.
0: <laughs> and so, <laughs> even someone like you—that's great. That's good to know. You, yeah, well, you've to, got your yeah.
1: threshold, right? Yeah. So, w- once I was in San Francisco with my friend Neil Lozen, who helped produce um, and shoot uh, "A Ghost in the Making" by the Rusty Patch, and we we were looking for salamanders to photograph, and we rolled over a log, and there was a mother centipede holding a clutch of eggs. And I mean, I was just immediately like, y-. you know, I just had that reaction until and and we both witnessed this and so like i know that i wasn't imagining it she dropped one of the eggs because we had flipped the log over and she reached down with one leg and picked the egg up and brought it back to her body oh my god and i've never thought of them the same way again sure she had that awareness you know that she knew and she could be that yeah. agile that she could yeah. pick up that egg and i was like that was it for me i was like she is aware of what's happening i don't know how it is for her but she was aware that her precious
0: egg had been dropped. That's what Disney need to make their next film about. <laughs> Centipede Princess? <laughs> Pulling on all those heartstrings of, you know, people that just don't like insects and they're icky and, you know, even giving someone like you that reaction, man, Disney would be able to they'd be able to tell that story.
1: Yeah. Just put a <laughs> couple of big eyes. If, if only he's yeah, yeah. had bigger eyes and eyelashes, I always think the difference is, you know, like furry eyelids or eyelashes makes all the difference, you know, jumping spiders sort of have eyelashes, uh, <laughs> there's something about that. We just like,
0: there, there is totally. Look, we talked about this film a lot and, but I wanted to read out this quote because this one was amazing. And you know, you reference Aldo Leopold a lot in the film. Um one of the penalties of an ecological education is that our lives alone in a world sorry is that one lives alone in a world of wounds um much of the damage is inflicted on a, on land is quite invisible to laymen and you know that's i guess a, a problem for for many people working in this field is you know getting all this knowledge and then thinking oh my god you know how do you how do you stay positive positive? and we talked a little bit about this before we were, we were having this uh, conversation just about you know how do you how do you remain hopeful when you know so much of also what we talked about is just so depressing in terms of the pesticide in terms of the $1000 a year budgets for like one insect you know think about the amount of money that's sloshing around in the in the world never mind in the US so um yeah, what what motivates you to to get out of, of bed in the morning and sort of keep that keep that thick skin thick? I I think it I think it comes down to love.
1: I love these things. I mean, I just feel such a and this this is the been through line for my entire life is that when I see something like that, I'm just filled with so much love that I feel like I can burst. And I know that I'm I'm um and i know that everyone's not like that but for some reason i am and i and i as i've gotten older i realize how special that is that i that i do feel that and so even though it is really hard at times i you cannot work in conservation and not feel hopeless at times or depressed at the end of the day i'm just delighted to see these things and i know that you know Everyone's not going to feel the way I do. In fact, it's probably a good thing. I mean, if the world, if everybody was running around after bees, that would probably be disturbing for them <laughs> at some point and no one would get anything else done. Um, but I think, I think it just comes down to love. And I think that that's what ultimately helps change the course. And, you know, if you, if you love someone or something, you realize that nothing is perfect and you, you just do the best you can because of that driving force. Yeah
0: awesome. Can we talk a little bit about you, the the photographer? Oh yeah. And you know, you've got this role with uh, WWF. Um, are you full time, by the way, with that job? I am. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a question I had for you: is you know, balancing your work as a photographer with your role as um, so you work in communications, is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, with WWF, yes. Yeah. So how do you find time to to balance both of those? Well, fortunately,
1: there is a lot of intersection in that work. Um, And what's been really exciting for me, so I work within the Northern Great Plains program and we have two main charges. One is um, to stop the plow up of grasslands in the Northern Great Plains. Uh, The Northern Great Plains is a vast area. It's one of the world's only four remaining temperate grasslands, um, which is incredibly important, not just for the animals that live there, but for as as a um, Stopgap against deforestation and to you know keep the, the climate from from warming too quickly. And then the other part of it is that we are working to restore two flagship species: the the plains bison and the black-footed ferret. The the driving factor for all of this plow up. So, like just to give an example, since uh, 2009, approximately 33 million acres, which is about 13.4 hectares of grassland, th- 13.4 million hectares of grassland have been plowed up. In the northern great plains for corn and soy and wheat yeah that ties directly into pollinators and to um, biodiversity and so as i've been in this role we are now talking as an organization about pollinators and i'm uh, moving into a new role as a not exactly sure what the title will be but pollinator expert or pollinator lead because we are doing more work to help pollinators so for example um, we had a, a, a recent partnership that was developed with a corporation to reseed um it, it, the 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 project is called the 1 square foot but it's so that so because every square foot makes a difference sure. whether it's in your backyard or or you know in the grasslands so reseeding 1 billion square feet which is around 23,000 acres of grassland for pollinators and so all of that to say that that because of my <laughs> obsessive tendencies that people I think just finally gave in and were like, okay, we'll start talking about pollinators. Because I the idea is that, you know, I don't know if I've said this already, but over 99% of life on earth is smaller than your your little finger. And if you care about bison, if you care about ferrets, if you care about grassland birds, you better darn well care about insects. Because without them you're not going to have any of that stuff. So the message is getting across or at least people have just i broken them down to the point that now WWF is talking about insects, and because it's an organization that, at least WWF US, I don't know if it's the same in other offices around the world. Because it's an organization that primarily focuses on large mammals, I just happen to have a specialized set of knowledge that and information that has allowed me to move into that role. Um, and so I get to go out and photograph pollinators and 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 other cool things for the organization and and do some video work and. The intersection is actually more and more obvious and, and evident every day in my work, which has been pretty, pretty fulfilling. But on the other hand, working, I always wanted to work for an NGO because I wanted to learn more about the mechanisms of policy and those kinds of things. And that's been a real education for me, because like in the US, we have the Farm Bill, for example, which really impacts whether someone is incentivized to, to plow up or disincentivized to plow up. Um, those things are really important. To understand you know i don't expect for the rest of my life i'll work for a big ngo but i i really do find it incredibly informative
0: yeah and you guess you're surrounded by other experts that know a lot more about this stuff and you can then be more informed and make more informed and better decisions. But what sounds really cool is that you've got this full-time job and it's not like photography is something that you're doing outside of that. Photography is something very much you're doing inside of that. And of course, as we all know, the the way it goes when you're working and you're doing the fun stuff, whether you're a designer or all the creative stuff, photographer, videographer, the higher up you move, the less of that stuff you do because you're managing people. But it sounds like you've got a good healthy balance of of doing both. Yeah, that's a really good point.
1: And to be honest, um, I don't really have the desire to ever leave those things behind. Like the creative process is really what drives me and you know, I, I sometimes tell people, well, I think that there's a there's a bit of snobbery in photography in part because it's as you well know, it's to be a professional photographer full-time is something that you have to work really hard at. And there's a luck involved and there's all of these things. And so I think when people achieve that they, they want to hold on to that. They don't want it to be diminished. And so I've had people that are like, oh, you're you you know, you're working there. Are you doing this?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I have found it to be, I mean, I think it has made me more successful in my own journey. Sometimes it's different for other people. And there are definitely days when I would rather be in the field or doing something else than than working on some of the things I might have to work on for WWF. Mm-hmm. But we all have to sit in front of the computer. We all have to e- answer emails like you're not in the field. I mean, the first thing any photographer will tell you is that you're mostly in the office, right?
0: Absolutely. So yeah. how is it any different? <laughs> no, it's not at all, is yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> um so look, we're going to slowly wrap this up. And but I mean, this is so much fun Claire talking to you. We could go on for hours and hours. And we will, hopefully, after this, but um yeah, we've got to find out what you're up to currently because when I was listening to other podcasts and reading, um, you know, the, it seems like well, you already started this new project. Well, you're t- doing two projects, right? You're writing a book and you're creating a field guide and you're working for WWF. But uh, 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 is the field guide connected to your work with WWF or is this something quite separate? It's, it's separate. And, sorry, I should go back and say, can you just tell us like the birth of the field guide and, and your idea behind it?
1: So I didn't actually set out to produce a field guide. Um, I love field guides, but as a photographer, it's not the kind of thing that really gets me excited. It's more about the information that I gather from it. And so when I first approached um, the the primary publishers on a tropical, I pitched more of a coffee table style book, which I should say I'm technically also working on at the same time as the field guide. (laughs) So three books, because, you know, (laughs) why not? Um, But... The thing that I realize is that you know, going back to myself as a 12-year-old child who saved up enough money to to buy my first field guide. If 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 those, sure, you can get online now, which makes a big difference. But there's something about a, a handy field guide that you can take with you that's really easy to look at that can change the way people see the world. And because there is not currently any guides to the bumblebees of all of the Americas. Um, there's not even a standalone book of bumblebees of South America or Central America. I realized there was a real opportunity there because it's not just in the US um, or Canada where uh, bumblebees are going, you know, dropping in number. It's also in South America. The world's largest bumblebee is in- being impacted by some of the same things, which is it's found in Chile and Argentina. It's being impacted by the commercial bumblebee industry as well. and Pesticides are clearly found throughout Latin America there's a great opportunity to use this field guide as, a, as as a tool to help create new conversations, create more awareness to empower um, young scientists to to you know who who may not have those resources in other places. So I'm really excited about the potential and I have this is one of those things where I have to kind of put my ego aside and go what what will be the most effective thing in this situation. But at the same time um, in ten with that I am shooting for more of a coffee table style book, which I think will will open up opportunities to, to give talks and, and help raise funding and those kinds of things. So I'm excited about that. But the other thing, as you mentioned at the beginning, is that I have written this um, the first draft around 82,000 words, which I never thought I would do, <laughs> um, a, a semi-autobiographical I guess book, I say semi because it's also I tie in science and research and all this sort of things. But the the the, the gist of the book is just about me sort of um, stumbling my way through trying to figure out, I could say bumbling my way through, it yeah. <laughs> uh, seemed too obvious, but there it is, um, through figuring out how to to take my passion and, and try to help nature and it's a pretty honest look like i the last thing i wanted to do was portray myself as some sort of white savior you know coming in and doing these things cuz i really i do know what i'm doing but it's trial by fire you know yeah. like i'm figuring it out i make mistakes um i don't always get it right and everything i do doesn't ultimately save the world i don't I, the idea of saving something and the, you know the words we use are really interesting losing things and saving things like I don't know about any of that but i do know that we can help things sure and and so that's the whole idea is that like if you put in the effort you might not be able to save the world but you can certainly make it a bit better um one time this was a few years ago i was feeling really distraught about the state of things in the world and i had moved into this this house in south carolina which had been like There was trash everywhere and like the creek and like everybody, like the the people that lived there had like raked all the leaves and mowed the grass down to the dirt. And about three years after that, I was sitting on my back porch at night and I suddenly heard the sound of all of these creatures like crawling through the leaf litter. And it was first it was a little bit disturbing, to be honest, but then I realized it was salamanders and, and fireflies and like all of these things that were there because I had made life possible for them. And suddenly there were millions. I realized there are millions of things right here around me, and I've helped to change those lives. And I think that is the idea that has really stuck with me: is that we all can truly make an impact. You know, even if it's just planting flowers in your balcony, you can really make a difference. So even though a square foot does, um, that sounds a little branding. But you know, even a square foot does make a difference. You know, for some organisms.
0: Yeah, no, it does, and I think. No, no need to apologize for catchy phrases because that's what gets gets people's attention. You know, this allotment I was telling you about where I've been photographing these foxes about just over three years ago, an email went round. And because there's one bit, it used to be an old railway line. So the ground is actually terrible. It's like mm. really rocky. And so lots of people have raised beds there. And there was a an area at the very end of the allotment uh, where it just became a bit of a dumping ground for logs and stuff like that. And they said, does anyone want to do anything with this? Like maybe a wildlife garden. So I was just like, oh my God, immediately, you know, put my hand up. How often do you get offered a free bit of land in London? Not that I could go and build on it. Obviously that wasn't the point. So me and three other guys, we, um, yeah, just cleared out loads of the rubbish, raked up all the grass that had grown there. And, um, we put a pond in, we put a native hedge in and wildflower seeds. And it was just unbelievable. Like the speed with which it took off. We, we started it in November. We sowed the seeds in like March and um, we had this, like, you could not make it up how picturesque it was, you know, poppies and vetch and all these different field grasses and butterflies and bees. And you were just like, wow, this is a tiny little patch. And like you've said so many times on this podcast, a square foot, you know, we had more than that, but it's still tiny. The stuff that was coming in was just ridiculous. So, yeah, we just need to give it a little bit of a helping hand and then let it take care of itself.
1: Yeah, I mean that's at the end of the day. If, if my work, if my photos can make people curious and inspired to do that, then then I feel like you know it, it means something at the end of the day, and and that is worth more than anything else that I think any of us could accomplish. And I think for me, it's like that the realization that I had very early on was that. That if I didn't do something to help try to support the species I was photographing, then I was just taking, I was extracting as opposed to, you know, the more I put into helping the species and and, and planting wildflowers and things, the more return I get, not only because the species are there, but because I get to photograph all of these cool <laughs> things in
0: my backyard.
1: I'm yeah. very lazy at the end yeah. of the day. So that's, that's
0: brilliant. Well, Clayla, it's been so good talking to you. I love, I mean, a couple of times on this podcast, I've tried to gear towards, you know, Clay, the photographer, but You're clearly not interested in that at all. So, I'm not going to force it anymore. Like, you love talking about bees and your passion for uh, bees and other subjects are just like infectious. So, thanks so much. I did have one more question actually, because you, you know, you're clearly a workaholic. You're going to go and do this project, a field guide and a book. Are you also going to shoot video while you're there? Is there an idea of like documenting this for video diaries or something bigger?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure out the logistics of that, but, um, I have been um, thinking about how interesting it will be to have, you know, even if I'm not like sure what the final product would be, I mean, I just sort of imagine that you know, going from the Arctic Circle over a, a span of five years all the way down to Tierra del Fuego and South America, you can just imagine in a short span, almost almost like a time lapse, what that would look like. These bees and all of these different environments could be really killer.
0: Really cool. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, look, I look forward to that. And look, we'll put everything up in, in your write up page on on the podcast page, on your page on my site, and uh, hopefully spread the word about bees and all the other stuff that you're doing. And and also I haven't said congratulations because that's a big thing it's wildlife photographer of the year dinner tonight so yeah you can go and enjoy yourself thanks so much i'm so excited wow what a dude so great talking with clay and so nice to have these conversations face to face again and really nice to have a photographer speaking up for the little stuff we certainly need to connect more with that and as people like clay and bring it to the forefront through great images and passionate talking and I just wish we had more time but i'm grateful that i live in london where so many photographers pass through and give up a little bit of their time to talk to me and to you so to find out more about clay head over to his page on the podcast section on my website there are lots of links there to his social media you can check out the film we talked about which i really enjoyed it's a very beautiful film i encourage you to check that out and thanks so much again for listening and sharing Right, next up, Doug Gimishy in a couple of days. See you soon and hope you're enjoying Christmas.